Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie Nui here from the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's about all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. In this episode, we're talking about anesthesia, not in Australia, but in Mongolia. And the reason is because I have some very exciting news, and that is to congratulate Dr. Amanda Barrick, or Mandy as I know her, for being the recipient of the Order of the Polar Star from Mongolia. The Order of the Polar Star is the highest civilian award that Mongolia can present to a foreign citizen. It's not been awarded to many people, and Mandy is the only Australian recipient of this medal. We're delighted that she's been honoured this way. She's an incredibly hardworking and talented anaesthetist. And we're very proud to support her work and that through her, we've been able to partner with the Mongolian Society of Anaesthetists. We support her work through what's called our Overseas Development and Education Committee. I'll be sharing more details about the ASA's ODEC Committee at the end of this episode, as well as some links for people who are interested in getting involved in global health. This episode is also a little bit of a milestone in that it is the last episode for 2021 and it means that if it comes out on time that we would have produced an episode every fortnight during 2021. So I hope this podcast finds you well wherever you are. I hope it finds you having had a safe and merry Christmas and who knows what 2022 will bring and what will happen to international travel. Whatever is in store, I just hope it means we all stay as safe out there as we possibly can. All right, let's get into it. Thank you. Thanks very much for giving up some time this morning and having a chat with me. It's very exciting. Yes. What we're going to be talking about. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. And first, I need to start with saying congratulations. Thank you. You were recently awarded the Order of the Polar Star, Mm -hmm. which is the highest honour from Mongolia. Do you have a special title now? No, I think it's it's a bit like an Order of Australia. You don't really get any title associated with it. So you're your official recipient of the order? I'm a recipient, yes. Do you get fancy post-nominals now, like you do with an Order of Australia medal? I don't think so. I haven't been given any protocols associated with this. This is the first honour I have been bestowed with, and I'm very proud of it. Definitely very proud of it. And there probably aren't many alumni in Australia that you can ask. Sadly, I think I might be the only one. Not sadly. Fantastic that you are the only Order of the Polar Star recipient in Australia. You do have good company, though. You've got Barack Obama and was it Hillary Clinton as well? Yes, I believe so. And quite a large number of um, Mongolians themselves. In fact, the ambassador himself had been awarded the Polar Star. Ah. So you went up to Canberra to receive the award. Mm -hmm. Tell me, what was that like? It was quite surreal, actually, because I'd only learned about it a couple of months before. It came out of the blue as quite a surprise. So it was actually quite exciting to go up to Canberra and receive an official award. I'd never experienced anything like that in my entire life. So it was quite an unusual experience. It was quiet in Canberra on the day because Parliament had just finished sitting. The meeting with the ambassador was a beautiful experience. The ambassador had only just arrived a couple of weeks before, and I believe it was his second official engagement. He was a lovely person, and although there were very few of us present at the ceremony, it felt very formal. Good one. And so did you meet at the embassy? Yeah, at the embassy itself. I grew up in Canberra, and there's a very lovely suburb where a lot of the embassies are. Is that where the Mongolian embassy is? Yes, it's in O'Malley. It's a lovely part of Canberra. 
we should talk about why you were awarded this honour. So obviously for your work in Mongolia. Yeah. So let's go back. When did that first start? I believe my first trip was in 2006. And how did you first get involved? I think I was in the right place, I guess, at the right time. What had happened was that, as you are aware, we work with a very wonderful person called David Pescod, who has been doing a lot of international work and development work around the world. And he had turned around one day and said, oh, maybe you do some obstetric anesthesia. Um, I've been going to Mongolia for the last couple of years, but I need a hand. I need to do some uh, teaching on obstetric anesthesia. And I know you've done that recently. I want you to come. Are you free? And so that's how it got cooked up the first time. And I guess what had happened was that I had arrived into Mongolia not knowing a lot about the health system. Dave and I spent some time reading all the travel books and learning a little bit about the culture. And I'd tried to learn a couple of words in Mongolian, which is a very difficult language. And then we turned up and, and ran a seminar in UB for, I think, for a, only 30 people. And UB being Ulaanbaatar, the capital? Yes, Ulaanbaatar. Yes, so we had run a seminar for a few days, I think. I think we'd spent two weeks or something similar in Mongolia. We had been asked to do some teaching and they'd given us some topics that they needed to cover and did a whole lot of preparation work for it because, of course, you turn up and you think, well, I need to run this like a real meeting, conference. I provided an abstract book. In fact, it wasn't even abstracts. It was complete articles and and reviews of all the topics that they had sent us to prepare. Wow. So you ran a two-week seminar just between the two of you? It wasn't two weeks for the whole seminar. We ran the seminar for a few days first and then went off to the hospitals to have a look at their practices. And then we thought, actually, we've done this in the wrong way around. (laughs) We should have looked at what they were doing first and then adapted what we were teaching. And so that was my first experience of Mongolia. And what was your first impression of the health system or a hospital in in Mongolia? My first impression was this was very familiar, not to Australian practice, but I'd been to Romania and Croatia before, which are also ex-communist countries and had a similar health system. And then I thought about it and I looked around and I thought, well, the buildings are very similar. As you might imagine, they're all very Russian-style hospitals. At that time, they had a lot of hospitals in the country because it was based on the Samashko health system, which involved a large number of um, hospitals being built around the country in the attempt to provide universal health care. But unfortunately, the workforce wasn't there. A lot of the expense of the health system at the time was around maintaining these buildings and not so much around the training of the people that were there. And I I guess what you do when you do this sort of work is you just spend a lot of time observing. And I think that's really important. Definitely. Just seeing what the practice is and trying to understand why people do things. And there's often a very good reason why things are, are done the way they are. Yes. It was interesting because we were invited to see some procedures in theatre and it was very sparse in the theatre, but there was an anaesthetic trolley of sorts with a leather-bound, I guess, a roll-up of drugs. You'd unravel it and then you'd pull out all your ampules, all written in Mongolian Cyrillic, which was incomprehensible to me. And we observed a, 
a young woman undergoing an appendectomy under a spinal, which was quite different to what we were used to in Australia. Exactly. Those things are eye-opening for Australian anaesthetists. Yeah, and the sorts of things that we had asked about, what was your sterilisation system like and who was responsible for, for looking after the patient afterward. It was a little a little different, as you might imagine. Um, Susie, you're quite aware you've worked in places like this yourself yeah. where you realise, oh, actually there is no recovery room. Um, yes. The patient was transported to the ward half asleep if they'd had a general anaesthetic. And we just asked lots of questions about what was being done. It was quite different to our own practice. And I was quite a junior consultant. So it was quite confronting to see that this was possible to do some good work and provide a service, but also yes. that it was quite different and quite challenging for the people that were doing it. And then what we'd learned was, well, actually the people that were providing the anaesthesia, although they were doctors, had only really had a few weeks of training. Very different to here in Australia. And so the seminar that you gave was initially to an audience of about 30 people, you said. Mm. Has that changed over the years that you've been going? Oh, yeah. So when I asked who was attending the seminar, we had quite a mixture of different people. There were mostly anaesthetists, but some of them were obstetricians and a couple of neonatologists. And they were just interested to hear anything from anywhere. And at the time, there was little in the way of contact from any other specialty or craft group from outside. And so there was this thirst and hunger for knowledge. Yes, I can imagine. They'd been shut out, essentially, from the rest of the world. And the challenges of no access to internet or even English language textbooks. So there were a lot of Russian textbooks, very old journals, no real access to anything current. And so we'd opened the door and entered and there was this whole bunch of people on the other side who just wanted to hear some news from out there. But over the years, so since 2006, that has grown enormously. So you've been going back every year now since 2006? Yeah, more or less, except during the pandemic. What do those trips look like? Well, now they look like a whole bunch of experts from different fields. So so not just anaesthesia? Mm, correct. So in about the third or fourth year, one of the obstetricians from the hospital said, do you think that you could bring some obstetricians with you next time? Because we need some help in obstetrics. So at the time they were asking for obstetric help, but actually they needed a lot of help with the establishment of laparoscopic surgery for gynaecology. And of course, with that, we had to teach them how to do a safe general anaesthetic. And I got home and tapped a few people on the shoulder and said, do you think you could come and help us out? So what happened was in 2009, we started doing some obstetrics and then moved on to gynaecology and they formed their own little team of obstetricians and gynaecologists. And Emma Reedman and, and Kim Jansen have been leading that group ever since 2009. And they have improved gynaecological surgery out of sight to the women of Mongolia. Fantastic. Not just in the centre, but also throughout the country. And so they have their own little team and they have had to split off after a while because the teams became very large. Initially, it was just David and me. And then the second year, we co-opted a fellow from the children's and we taught some perioperative medicine. And then the year after, we co-opted Glenda Rudkin and Duncan Wood to teach pain medicine. And then from there, it was a bit like exponential growth in, in numbers of people who had expressed an interest. We had actually 
sought people with various levels of expertise in different fields because, of course, they never asked for seminars or themes that were easy all the time. So we've been very fortunate. Um, and ethicists in Australia are a, a generous bunch. So it started as the two of you going for two weeks to Ulaanbaatar, yeah. giving a two-day seminar to 30 anaesthetists mm-hmm. and having a visit of the hospitals. Yeah. And now it's become a multidisciplinary big team teaching various specialty and subspecialty topics in not just anesthesia. And how many participants would be coming now from the Mongolian uh, We have over 200 each time. Wow, over 200. Wow. That's just the anesthesia. Just anesthesia. Yeah, yeah. And still going to Ulaanbaatar? No. So, in fact, a lot of our crowd, particularly the emergency physician group and the gynecologists, and including the anesthetists, we've gone to the countryside as well, particularly for some clinical work. But we try and bring people into town for the annual seminar and the associated workshops and updates that go along with that. We've been very fortunate with the support of people like Safi Sivanayagam have been able to support and fund travel back into the UB from the countryside because, as you know, it's a sparsely populated country. It's very challenging to cross the country. Well, so you're the person who's coordinating and spearheading the Australian group. I can see why you well and truly deserve this honour because there's a lot of work I can see going in there. And with the Mongolians, would they be the ones putting forward the ideas for the topics that they wanted to hear about for subsequent seminars? Yes, very much so. Initially. Um, I think David must have been picking the first couple of topics, but Gambold, who's the president, or was the president of the MSA at the time that we first started going. And the MSA being the Mongolian Society of Anesthetists. So they were the ones that chose the direction that they wanted to go. Even though we were providing updates initially, what happened was that after, I think it was the second year, in 2007, I started asking a lot of questions about the training because I noticed that the people were coming in from the countryside with various levels of experience and various levels of training because it had got down to four months at one stage because of the need for an anaesthetist in the countryside. Four months of anaesthesia training and that's it. Yeah, off you go um, to the middle of nowhere. Such a difference. We have five years in Australia. Yeah. We're overcooked compared to their training system. I'm not sure that we're overcooked, Susie. No, I don't think we are at all. And it is challenging, as you know, when you go remotely, you're having to do everything with very little and probably with very few people around you. In fact, the best people should be the ones that are going out to the remotest parts of of Mongolia or anywhere, really. But it's interesting because we learned a lot about how they were being trained and about what their potential working conditions were like and what their needs were. There were a number of anaesthetists, probably about five, that had been to Bangkok for training externally. And so there was this core group of people that were quite skilled. Essentially, we looked around us and thought, well, we need to use these people to train the rest of them. And so we came to an understanding, essentially the ASA and the MSA signed a memorandum of understanding, to think about how we better train people because we were providing that annual refresher, but it didn't seem to be enough. So with the help of a few extra people, we looked around to see what we could do to establish a training program. And we were fortunate because the ASA had done quite a lot of work in this space already. I had heard about the great work that was being done in the Fiji School of Medicine and with their Diploma of Anesthesia. 
That's right. We've been doing lots of work in developing countries since the 80s, so there's a lot of experience there. And so we use that plus the fact that at the time we also had a modular training system in Australia. And so we thought, well, let's just write some anaesthesia modules with them. David Pescott had started to write a textbook called Developing Anaesthesia, which is essentially the main textbook that was being used. And then we wrote the modular training program with the help of everybody in our department. So whoever was around got tapped and they know who they are. So we were grateful to them for all the work they did. And people like Stan Tay did a huge amount of work in formulating and writing answers to clinical cases, which were added to the modules. The other thing that happened at the time was we realised that they actually needed some funds to set up an education officer and space for the MSA in which to do their training, including just basics like computers and data projectors and that sort of stuff. So it was interesting. We had some backing from Interplast and mostly the ASA actually and just passing the hat around. And so in 2008, we rolled out for the first time this new training program, which was 18 months. That's incredible that you only first went there in 2006 and then in 2008 you're, you're already rolling out a training program. That is an incredible pace, man. Oh, yes. It was like a snowball. Once you start the ball rolling, it just sort of gathers momentum. And there are so many people out there with expertise that we were able to rope in to the project. And they were very, very generous. And in fact, they're still generous with their time and their, their knowledge. Yeah, great. It's been rewarding. So in fact, that's the greatest achievement is actually setting up that program. And each year we train 20 to 30 in EFTIS. We started going and I said to them, how many anaesthetists do you have? And they said, well, they're all here. And that was the 30 in the room. And I said, are you sure? But actually there were 100 in the country of 2 million people with the size that was four times the size of Germany, I think, in terms of land area. It's sparsely populated. But they've got a larger number of anaesthetists now, thanks to the training program and to the work of the MSA. So that's incredible. You were there in 2006 for your first visit, which was the, a few days of seminar. And then you're back there in 2008, launching an 18-month training program in anesthesia. And how many anesthetists do you think have been trained now as a result of that program? I guess there must be at least maybe 150. I don't know the exact numbers, but yeah. there are a larger number of anesthetists now that are practicing in the country. Because at the time when we first went, they said they had only 30 practising, but there were a larger number of anaesthetists, but a lot of them had left the profession because at the time mortality was, in fact, that's been halved. Exactly. Work conditions take their oh, toll. Yeah. And it's not fun to go to work. You don't go to work to injure somebody and see somebody die or watch helplessly as you couldn't do something. And so now the profession has advanced. They've become very yeah. influential in the Ministry of Health as well, which has been great. Oh, good. So you developed the modules, mm -hmm. 18 months of training program, developed a curriculum. And then did you hand it over to the Mongolian Society of Anesthetists or are you still involved with helping them develop the content, deliver the content? No, actually, that's the interesting thing. We didn't do it as a, here it is, you deliver it. So the Mongolians actually did a lot of the work. They developed the examination and the standards that they have now taken responsibility for before it used to be with the ministry. And they own it and they have revised whatever they needed to because you can't just translate a training program. You can't take Fiji's and, and take it to Mongolia. You have to rewrite it. We rewrote it as best we could and then they rewrote it again and translated it. And I think that that's the, 
the beauty of it is that it's not ours. It belongs to the MSA. That is brilliant, yes. And they're responsible for asking for whatever it is that they need. They're teaching it. We don't teach it because we're only there for a short time. They've got to teach it. And you just come and deliver those extra seminars. Yeah, correct. As a special focus topic. Correct, yeah, and practical workshops. In fact, our teaching has improved so much since the time we first started going. We've started um, engaging in simulation even. It's very hard to do in another language, but it, it's been great. And and as we've gone along, certainly I have learned a lot. It's prompted me to go off and become a better teacher and also a better learner. Of course, as you know, you've got to be good at what you teach before you start rolling that out. And it makes you quite honest about what you do and don't know. There's a great quote I often mention at the end of my talks from Lila Watson, who's an Indigenous woman. And she basically says, if you've come here to teach me, then please go home. Yeah. But if you've come here because your destiny is bound up with mine, then let's go together. And I think I've learned far more than I ever would have learned anywhere else with this journey. We've learned almost as much as they have, probably more, because it's very humbling to go to a place where the resources aren't as readily available. To know that they've got to work in that environment and make it work for them and they've been able to improve with all of those limitations, it's out of sight. So as you know, anaesthetists in many countries of the world uh, provide intensive care services and emergency services. And so they've established essentially a faculty of emergency medicine, um, a separate specialty on the back of one of the visits that we had with our own emergency physicians. Do you still spend much time in theatre when you go over there? Not as much as we were, but there's the odd time that we get asked to go and have a look at something or to see that they're, they're doing what you teach. I used to always get hoiked in from the seminars to go and do a difficult cannulation in a paediatric patient. That was what I was known for, apparently. Well, you know, they've got you on tap, so why not? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So reflecting back, what do you think have been some of the highlights from your time there? Oh, I think the best thing is when you turn up the year after and it feels like you're going somewhere familiar, like going to visit your relatives or your friends. It's just the relationships we've built up. So every time I walk into to UB Airport, it feels like, oh, yeah, I'm coming to visit my mates here. I think that would be myriad as well from how I hear them talking about you. I think they would share the same sentiment. And one of the other highlights has actually been to see some of the first few people that did the training course now come and visit us. We were very fortunate. We had one of the doctors come and visit last year just before everything got locked down and out and he spent a couple of months here in Melbourne with his wife who's a gynecologist and obstetrician so she was doing an obstetric fellowship one of the things that's been beautiful about that is he's now one of the leaders of the MSA and some of the things that he was asking sort of reflected the direction in which they're going which includes the development of the profession Yeah, great. Unfortunately, sometimes you're a victim of your own success. And so when we first started going, the expectations of the patients weren't very high. If you turned up to a hospital, it may or may not usually didn't turn out very well. Exactly. You're lucky to survive in some countries and they know that when they're coming in for surgery. Mm, Correct. And now they're expecting to survive and do well when they go home. And so what's happening now is that the profession is looking to raise the standards. So they've been very good at adopting the WFSA standards of practice and they're looking to improve the continuing professional development framework. 
Yeah, great. It's a maturity that they have developed all on their own, really. I mean, they just observed us and they're very well regarded around the world. One of the things that I think has been fantastic is that people like Gambold and his core group of colleagues have developed a reputation for just getting out there and improving their system. They're very well recognised by the World Federation and by the WHO. Um, In fact, Mongolia is a poster child for what is possible. I just loved when we had the fellow visiting our hospital and it was at the start of the pandemic and they saw us doing a simulation, COVID intubation, and I was being one of the trainers and he, he stood next to me and he said, is this the PPE that you're planning to wear for a COVID intubation? Because, and he showed me a picture on his phone, this is what we're using in Mongolia. <laughs> they had the full face shields and everything and I was like, yeah, I know. And then I, I recall reading about Mongolia running, I think, a whole of health service simulation for a pandemic. And I thought, wow, that is one health system that is really preparing properly how to cope with this influx of patients. I was very impressed. I hope they're doing okay from a COVID point of view now. Do you know at all how they're going? So proportionally, if there is a higher number of um, people infected than in other countries. However, they seem to still be able to manage to provide a service, not just for, for COVID patients, but for, for their other patients at the moment. Wow, that's good. And uh, I was just going to say, the MSA has just celebrated their 60th anniversary of anaesthesia. Now, I should say that that's how David first got involved in Mongolia. He went over at the request of the then president of the word for Federation of Societies of Anesthesiologists, who was Kester Brown, a wonderful man. Yep. And he had sent David to the 40th anniversary celebrations. Oh, wow. So 20 years. Yeah. And then at the 50th anniversary celebrations, David was awarded a Medal of Honour by the Ministry of Health, which was at the time one of the highest civilian orders, certainly for a foreigner, for his ongoing work. And now it's the 60th. And I feel very wow. privileged to have been awarded this honour on the anniversary of the MSA. It's been a fantastic journey for all of us. Well deserved though, Mandy, well deserved. What do you think over the last few years that you've been going, have you come across any challenges? Oh yeah, (laughs) nothing insurmountable. There have been some tricky times with turning up and being asked to provide teaching on things that you feel perhaps less of a priority from your point of view, but clearly a priority from the recipient's point of view. So we were asked to provide some teaching on how to do anaesthesia for liver transplantation. So, yeah, that was challenging. Yes. And, and, and sometimes you get a request like that and you you just don't know how to respond because clearly it's something that they would like, but you also wonder, well, you're having trouble delivering safe maternity anaesthesia. Why is this a priority? And, it's very, and sometimes those conversations can be can be difficult. But there is a need and so you have to respectfully address that um, and also know that you can't be the person providing that advice or teaching and it is quite confronting. The graceful art of saying no, isn't it? And some of the other challenges that that I've had, particularly in the middle years, was we tended to be running everything. So one of the greatest challenges has been to actually to almost give them that 
push to say, well, actually, you guys are good enough. You've now got some really great experts that can deliver that continuing education for your own people that are coming from out of town. And I guess now the challenge is, well, I can do the basics, but I'm not going to be able to do that high-level academic research type presentation that perhaps that they're needing. Um, so one of the challenges for me has been to actually engage people at that level yeah. to recognise that this is where they're going and it's just as prestigious to present there as it is anywhere else in the world. <laughs> Definitely. I wanted to ask one final question, mm-hmm. which is something that I get asked a lot, uh, for particularly for people who are wanting to get into global health and doing anaesthetics in low and middle income countries. What tips or advice would you give to people who are wanting to get into this area? I think the first thing to say is there has to be a need before you go and try and meet it or a request. I think that's the first thing. And the second thing is, well, if you're interested in it, just go and have a chat with somebody who's done it. Discover what some of the challenges are. Know that... Things won't always work out wonderfully. And sometimes, I mean, we've certainly had that experience. People come and they say, well, I'm not sure quite what I contributed. But you don't recognise that there is a contribution even though you don't see it at the time. The people that you visited will come back and say, well, did you remember you taught us how to do that? And clearly that was meaningful. The main thing to do is, is to have a discussion with people you know that are already doing this sort of work and probably think about, whether you feel that that is the sort of work you want to do. I certainly haven't been involved in a lot of service work. Most of my work has been development work, which means teaching and supporting the locals to do their own thing. Clearly there is a need for service as well. I'm not disputing that at all. But you have to know what it is that you're wanting to do and what you feel you're capable of doing. And even if you don't feel you have great expertise in something, often that's all you need to deliver. That's probably one of the biggest things that underpins my work is, well, okay, I can actually just share what I've learned and I feel a responsibility to share what I've learned. So that's one of the things that I would say is find out the sort of work that you might be suitable to do. And when you do plan for something, understand what you're getting yourself into. And I think that one of the things you need to be prepared for is the long haul. And some years it's going to be great and some years not so great maybe just a little short of what you expected, and be prepared to build relationships. And if you're not prepared to build relationships and your heart's not in it, then you have to kind of accept that and move on. True, true, true. Very sage words of advice there, Mandy, from someone who's had a lot of experience and also now very highly awarded for the fantastic work that you've done in Mongolia. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Is there anything else that you'd like to say? Susie, I just want to say I would like to encourage people to do this sort of work if they are interested in it because it's so rewarding. I mean, not just because you get an award at the end of it. That was completely unexpected. But I don't know, your own personal development sometimes revolves around what you do. And I don't think I would have ever become as good an anaesthetist without doing this sort of work and as good a teacher, I think. You don't see yourself doing this when you start out, but you know, when you start out, you just don't know where you're going to go. Yeah, I relate 100%. There's, I think, many things in my career that I would not have become if it wasn't for my involvement with the Cambodian Society. So definitely. Yeah. And take the opportunity when you get it. Someone taps you on the shoulder. Yeah, just go. Definitely. Yeah. 
Oh, well, look, lovely, lovely, as always, chatting with you. Thank you. It's been fantastic having a catch-up on all of your activities. A very small little glimpse, I feel, into all of your activities in Mongolia. And congratulations once again for being Australia's first or only recipient of the Order of the Polar Star from Mongolia. Congratulations and thank you. Thank you. Well, it was great, as always, chatting with Mandy. And thank you once again for the fantastic work that you do in Mongolia. And I'm glad that it's been recognised with you now being a recipient of the Order of the Polar Star of Mongolia. Thank you also to everyone who's been involved with that work over the years. And also thank you for inviting the ASA to support you in that work. The ASA has been supporting global health initiatives since the mid-80s. The ASA is proud to partner with a number of anaesthetic societies. Some examples are the anaesthesia societies in the Pacific, Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, Federated States of Micronesia, and many, many more. Before COVID, there were teams often going over and helping these societies deliver their educational content, as well as helping to develop anaesthesia and other related services in the country. We do this through the ODEC Committee, which stands for the Overseas Development and Education Committee. There are a number of fellowship programs that are overseen by ODEC. So there are ones at the Fiji National University. There's one to Timor-Leste. There's an essential pain management program. There's a Solomon Islands initiative, as well as various other projects. If you want to find out more details, they can be found on the ASA website. And of course, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Mandy also mentioned that one of the best ways to find out more about this sort of work is to have a chat with people. And one of the best ways of finding these people is to come along to the National Scientific Congress of the ASA and attend the ODEC session, where you'll get to hear some interesting talks, but also be joined by a room full of other people who are interested in global health. Another way to get involved is to attend the Real World Anesthesia course, otherwise known as RWAC, which again, the ASA is proud to be able to support. I don't think they've been running of late, but there is an application form and I can put a link to that in the show notes so that you can be notified once they get going again. It's a fantastic course. It's one that I did many years ago and it's where I got to learn how to deliver anesthesia using a drawover machine. I got to talk about the differences between humanitarian work as compared to international development work. And also just got to hang out with a great bunch of people who've been doing this work sometimes for many, many years and try and soak up as much as I could from their experience. Of course, who knows what's in store for the next few years or even in the foreseeable future. But we've been doing a lot of work in assisting anaesthetists in the neighbouring region with online content in lieu of being able to run face-to-face workshops. And so there may be ways to get involved with that as well. All right. In the meantime, I hope you've had a Merry Christmas. I hope you've had a reasonable 2021, as good as it can be. And I hope that we can maintain some realistic optimism for what's in store in 2022. Most importantly, I hope that we all are staying safe out there. This episode of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists, otherwise known as the ASA. More episodes can be found on the ASA website, theasa.org.au. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to receive the latest episodes. And of course, you're welcome to share them as widely as you wish. Please send any feedback to the ASA by emailing asa at asa.org.au. Music was by Mark Suss, and we hope you enjoyed listening.